Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. So happy you can join Miles Simmons and me as we get you prepared two weeks out for the NFL draft. And Miles, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, some of them not having to do with the draft, but let's just go over our lineup. First, Odell Beckham to the Ravens. What does it mean? And you have a very interesting thought, I think, about how this doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to be all peaches and cream with Lamar Jackson. Everybody is starting to think now that the number one pick in this draft is going to be Bryce Young. It's kind of funny. The other day I looked and the gamblers still don't think it's going to be Bryce Young, but hey, we'll see what happens. The gamblers or the people who... uh, do this for a living. Uh, So Jalen Carter has made some visits now. The quasi-troubled Georgia defensive lineman is trying to basically sell his uh, his play and his personality uh, in Las Vegas and Seattle this week. The last week, by the way, that teams can do in-person visits with prospects before the draft. Michael Bidwill, the owner of the the Arizona Cardinals, is in some trouble in uh, Arizona. We're going to delve into that and why one of his former top personnel executives uh, is challenging him. And really, this is a sordid story, but I think it's an important story to realize. Miles and I will get into that. Uh, We're going to be joined by Tom Pelissero of NFL Network, who had some very interesting news on Monday night about Cliff Kingsbury, uh, the former hire of Michael Bidwill in Arizona just four years ago, uh, now joining the coaching staff at USC. We'll get into that with uh, Tom Pelissero and uh, everything about what he's hearing with the draft. I'm going to tell you a story about how bunched up I think the receivers are in this draft and why If you're in the second half of the first round, like Baltimore, like the New York Giants, you are going to, if you choose, you're going to be able to get an excellent receiver in the second half of the first round. What team is going to be the most aggressive going up to number three for Arizona's pick? I will give you my two best candidates to go up and do this. Miles and I will uh, discuss this because I think this is the first other than, I think it's a 10% mystery about whether uh, Houston takes a quarterback at number two, but it's probably not all that mysterious. I would agree with everybody who says, God, they have to take a quarterback. So I think they probably will, even though there's some smart people who are saying, 
not so fast on that one. Also, I'm going to talk about why the mystery of this draft has really been heightened because six of the top nine picks are controlled by either general managers or coaches in their first or second drafts. So in other words, there really isn't a great book on what uh, some of these newbies will do. And so that's why, as one agent told me over the weekend, these mock drafts are going to be totally embarrassing for you guys. And so, you know, he might be he might be right. Mine are always embarrassing anyway, so this won't be uh, anything new. But anyway, that's sort of our lineup today. Miles Simmons, just uh, two weeks before the draft. And, and I think sort of the overriding story, it's so odd, before the draft, just two weeks before the draft, that it's amazing how much Lamar Jackson, and by extension, Odell Beckham Jr., have really kind of hijacked a lot of the hype train for uh, the the NFL draft. So let's start there. Your thought about what the Ravens did in signing Odell Beckham Jr. to a one-year contract, $15 million guaranteed, according to Adam Schefter, $18 million total is possible. Yeah, I, I think it's a good move for Baltimore. I think it's a move that they kind of had to make in order to solidify that receiver position, which we know with Baltimore has been an issue for a long time, right? It's not like they have been really great at drafting and developing receivers. Rashad Bateman took exception to that um, when Eric DaCosta made mention of that at the at the Combine um, back, I don't know, a month or so ago, whenever it was. Time sort of has no meaning for me anymore, I guess. But I, I think when you look at what Odell Beckham Jr. can potentially do for that offense, it's great. It, it's nice that he has um, some familiarity with Todd Munkin from their time in Cleveland in 2019. So they understand each other in that aspect a little bit. Um, but also I think just when you have a new offensive coordinator and you're trying to implement something that can elevate an offensive system, having Odell Beckham Jr. Can't hurt you now. How much will it really help the Ravens? I don't know. I don't know that any of us really know. I mean, Odell Beckham Jr. Hasn't played football since the first half of Super Bowl 56, where it looked like he was on track to become the MVP of that football game until he tore his ACL for the second time. And, and I think when you're coming off an ACL injury for the second time as he is, we just don't really know if you're going to have that same level of explosion that he used to have. And that's no fault of his own. It's just the reality of what happens when you have an injured wide receiver. So I, I do think it's a good move for Baltimore. I think it's a move that they had to be aggressive in making, but I just don't know how much it's going to really help that offense. A, because you don't really know what Odell Beckham Jr. is going to look like on the field. And B, because we still don't quite know, Peter, who their quarterback is going to be and when that quarterback is going to be involved, if at all, in the offseason program and training camp. I think this, first of all, uh, if the Baltimore Ravens were not having this mega problem with... Lamar Jackson. Personally, I don't think there's any way they would have guaranteed $15 million to a receiver who's had two ACLs in the last three years, who over the last three years has has had 880 uh, yards of 
receptions, something like that, uh, and who has been a shell of himself. And again, he was on his way in the postseason, when, on the Rams' postseason run, and then he tore his ACL. But here's the problem, Miles. You have a two-time ACL guy entering his age 31 year, and uh, I think in general... When you look at skill players, speed skill players who've had multiple ACL injuries, and it's just, it's unprecedented to get that amount of money guaranteed to them. And so I think the Ravens did this basically to say to Lamar Jackson, listen, we're serious. We're going to build a great offense for you. Uh, we've already done a lot of what you wanted uh, in building the offense. And so I think that this is a red carpet being rolled out to Lamar Jackson in South Florida and saying, listen, you know, let's do, let's even do a short contract. You know, the Ravens basically have already, according to Lamar Jackson, already seemingly offered him a three-year contract that, that seems either totally or, uh, or mostly guaranteed, uh, he tweeted it was for $133 million. I don't know how he can ex be expected to get a lot more than that anywhere. But I do think the Ravens have ratcheted down. They basically, as you saw in their press conference, they kind of have a news blackout now uh, on all things Lamar. And the bottom line in this is they're trying to ratchet down the temperature in this and say to Lamar Jackson, um, you know, let's get something done. Listen, the funniest thing, Miles, that I've heard in the last few days is, would the Ravens take Will Levis if he's available down there low in the first round? Would they? The Ravens are not taking a quarterback in the first round. Stop, stop. It, it, that, that is not happening. I mean, why would they slap Lamar Jackson in the face by taking a quarterback in the first round? It's ludicrous. And so anyway, that's kind of how I see this. I think the money is really excessive, but I think it's just the cost of doing business right now for the Ravens. It is the cost of doing business, but, and you alluded to this earlier, Peter, I, I just don't know that it really means that Lamar Jackson and uh, the Baltimore Ravens are going to all of a sudden hold hands and sing Kumbaya around the campfire. I, I mean, right. I, yeah, because you're right. Lamar Jackson is an unpredictable actor and I don't mean that in a bad way or a negative way it's just the truth because how in the world would anyone have thought that we would be here with Lamar Jackson where he's been hit with a non-exclusive franchise tag there's no real interest in him on the open market which we know because there's been no reported meetings or anything like that right and also now we have a situation where if they don't get anything done then he is in line to make $32 million in the coming season. Now, I mean, they could work something out for a one-year deal, a two-year, three-year, short-term, whatever it happens to be before that, uh, I think it's the July 17th deadline because the 15th falls on a weekend this year. So there's a lot of time before, you know, it's a critical mass point, right, before the Ravens and Lamar Jackson have to do something. But at the same time, I just don't know what's going to happen next. Because we can't predict it with Lamar Jackson. I mean, who would have thought 
that when uh, John Harbaugh was going to sit down with the media at the league meeting a couple weeks ago, that we would have a tweet that says Lamar Jackson requested a trade on March 2nd, which he doesn't really need to request a trade because he's a free agent and he can go meet with other teams. So it, it's an entirely unpredictable situation. I think having Odell Beckham Jr. there is a sort of olive branch, but what does that mean for Lamar Jackson? I don't know. And I don't know that anybody really, really knows until Lamar Jackson signs something with the Ravens or with somebody else that you know gives him whatever the money that he wants or can't actually get. So until then, I, I just don't really know what it means for the next steps for the Ravens and Lamar Jackson. Let's move on to this draft and uh, the Bryce Young feeling. Uh, Chris Mortensen of ESPN, uh, who's, by the way, Chris Mortensen's son, Alex, last year was Bryce Young's quarterback coach at Alabama. Uh, Alex Mortensen is now the offensive coordinator under Trent Dilfer at Alabama, Birmingham. But I find that connection to be fascinating because Mort said last week that he believes when it's time to, to draft that Bryce Young will certainly be the, the pick of the Carolina Panthers. That's just another brick in the wall, quite honestly, Miles. As I wrote last week, Bryce Young has multiple mega fans inside the Carolina Panthers. And even though we might say, based on my weird reporting of Frank Reich's uh, passion for tall quarterbacks, um, that this could really go against the grain. Or, you know, who knows? Frank Reich could like C.J. Stroud, and he could just say, okay, everybody else likes Bryce Young. I'm going to go with you. I think it's really important to realize the kind of personality that Frank Reich has. And I'm not saying he's malleable or he's easy or he's a pushover, but he is a consensus builder. And he, in essence, is a, you give me the quarterback and I'll coach him up. And I think it's it's pretty well known now that uh, Josh McCown really likes Bryce Young. That's going to be his quarterback coach. I don't know what the other guys on the staff, the coaching staff, think in terms of, uh, you know, who their favorite is. But, Miles, the one thing that really interests me, and uh, Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network, Uh, talked about this on a podcast last week is that a lot of people will talk about Bryce Young's height. And obviously there's never been a 5'10", 198 pound quarterback, whatever he's going to be. In other words, he's not only short, but he's slight. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's never been a quarterback basically that size succeed long-term in the NFL. And a lot of people now are starting to talk about this thing called the S2 cognition test. And every quarterback and a lot of players are basically taking this test now every year. It's a test made by uh, a a couple of Nashville-based, one neuroscientist. And what it is, it's designed, it's basically a reaction test. And it's how players can quickly and accurately process information in a football game, in a baseball game, 
Baseball players have taken it to talk about, is this guy going to be able to see the curveball in the, you know, absolute split second time that he needs to, to be able to do, do well. And the reason why this is so interesting is that last year, Brock Purdy was the number one guy with the S2 cognition test. And obviously he's the last pick in the draft and went on to have a stunningly successful rookie year with the 49ers. And this year, according to Daniel Jeremiah last week, uh, the number one guy among the quarterbacks this year is Bryce Young, which I think will come as no surprise if you watched him play football for Alabama. Miles, your thought about Bryce Young seeming now to be in the driver's seat for the number one pick. Uh, It makes sense to me. And one of the things you, you just brought up, you know, the coaching staff, with the Carolina Panthers, if there's any quarterback in this draft that should be able to go to any place, it should be to go to the Panthers and be able to succeed because of all the people who are there to support that young QB. And you got to give David Tepper some credit for going out and investing in this part of it because there is no salary cap on coaches. So like you mentioned, they've got Josh McCown as the quarterback's coach. Thomas Brown, who has experience with the Sean McVay system with the Los Angeles Rams. He's the offensive coordinator. You have Jim Caldwell, who has done a great job and has a great history of developing quarterbacks and developing successful offenses. Also has been a successful head coach. And then you've got Frank Reich, who also has a long history of developing quarterbacks. So if you put somebody, whether, you know, you have maybe questions, whatnot about the size, like a Bryce Young or maybe a CJ Stroud, whoever it happens to be. But if if that person goes to the Panthers, they should have the coaching available to them to be successful at the next level. Now, Whether it's Bryce Young or it's C.J. Stroud, I mean, it's going to be one of those two guys, right? I think if you look at what Bryce Young did in college and the history that he has um, with being successful at Alabama, winning a Heisman Trophy, I think that makes sense. You know, he is the kind of person that despite the questions about his size, you look at him and you say, all right, he looks like somebody who can be successful at the next level. Now, whether he is or not, I don't know. But I think that if he does happen to go to the Panthers, he's going to be in a good situation when it comes to the things that are around him in order to have that foundation of success. Miles, I think that obviously is going to be the number one story I will expect. So for people who don't really understand how the draft works these days, Roger Goodell wants a TV show. Yeah. Uh, on Thursday, April 27. Is that it? Thursday, April. Yeah. Thursday, April 27. He wants a TV show. He doesn't want all the answers to be given out, which is why uh, I think that the Panthers, you're going to see and hear them being very protective of that pick uh, and not, you know, leak a lot of stuff. We'll see. I, I, I We'll see if they do or they don't. But... I think they're in good position with the second pick because Nick Casario, as one other general manager in the league said, Casario's a CIA agent. You're not going to find out what he's doing before the draft. (laughs) And so, you know, so we'll see what happens. Uh, And we'll get into all that as as in the next couple of weeks. What do you want to hear if you're Dave Ziegler, the GM in 
uh, Vegas or Josh McDaniels, the head coach, or John Schneider or Pete Carroll in Seattle. When Jalen Carter visits your building this week, he's visiting both Vegas and Seattle. What do you want to hear to convince you that you should pick him, even though there's so much noise saying how dangerous uh, a person, dangerous is the wrong word, how risky a person Jalen Carter is off the field? That's a good question because I think if I'm a general manager, I I would want to know that A, you love football, and B, you love football enough to be disciplined in what it is that you do every single day to be a successful pro. And so that means you're not going to engage in risky behavior off the field, right? It means that you've learned from everything that you've been through. Maybe you have some regrets, but you're going to do whatever you can to make yourself a good part of a football community. And that means, you know, doing good things off the field, like participating in community service efforts, but also make yourself the absolute best teammate you can be by holding yourself accountable on and off the field. So I guess it would be that. Um, But I don't know how much one person can convince you of that. You know, if you are sitting across from them face to face and you also have information that, may or may not contradict that. And I don't know what information that, you know, uh, I almost called them Oakland, that Las Vegas and Seattle has. But I, I think that that conversation would certainly be important to have. I, what would you want to hear, Peter? I would want to hear thoughtful and passionate talk about uh how I'm going to be better in the NFL than I was in college football. Now, everybody knows what a good and impactful player he was, but, you know, there's many reports out there that he really was not a great practice player. Not that, you know, we can talk about Allen Iverson, but not that (laughs) that really matters, but it does matter to some teams. If you're not a great practice player that, and you're the number one pick in the draft and you, uh, you know, are lackadaisical on the practice field, that's going to set a very bad tone for the rest of your team if you think that the number one draft pick can get away with this. And so, look, I just want to hear, honestly, that I love football. I'm going to dedicate myself to being the best player I can. And then you're just going to have to find out if in the two or three hours that you're with um, Jalen Carter, if you can trust that. And if that will overcome some of the negative things, and there's a lot of negative stuff floating out about him, whether it's true, uh, you know, maybe we'll never know. But I do think he has a lot to overcome. Miles, let's just get into, just for a moment, uh, the Michael Bidwill, Terry McDonough, the former vice president of personnel, for the Arizona Cardinals, the uh, basically the grievance that Terry McDonough has filed against uh, Michael Bidwill after being fired earlier this year, and it involves Steve Wilkes after his single year as the head coach in 2018, and the fact that Terry McDonough now claims that in 2018, Michael Bidwill, the owner of the Cardinals, 
after the suspension of general manager Steve Kime for five weeks, at which point uh, everyone in the organization was told you can have no contact with Steve Kime. Uh, that Terry McDonough claims that Michael Bidwill gave him and uh, uh, Steve Wilkes, the head coach, burner phones and said, here, you, you use these to keep in contact with Steve Kime. Kime has one too. And obviously, why burner phones? Because if the NFL ever investigated whether there was any contact between the Cardinals and Kime during his suspension, you just hand over your team-issued phones, your regular phones, and it wouldn't show any contact. The burner phones, obviously, might be full of contact, but Terry McDonough said to Michael Bidwill, we're not comfortable doing this, and that started a downward slide. And look, Miles, I think that the only thing about this that that I think really matters to people, because there's going to be a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of he said she said uh, when the NFL investigates this case, no question about it. However, I think the only thing that really matters is whether Michael Bidwill did give burner phones to the head coach and to the de facto temporary general manager of the Cardinals when Steve Kime was suspended. If he did do that, then Roger Goodell is going to have to suspend him. Oh, yeah, uh, that's that's for sure. I mean, and look, it's the, the Cardinals are just one of those organizations where at least this offseason, it just seems like it's always something. And, you know, things keep coming, whether it was the NFLPA survey where, you know, you're hearing about players having get comped for their meals, which is not happening basically at any other organization in the National Football League. Or now we have this issue or what Peter, what I took issue with. And, you know, we talked about this at PFT. It, it, the, the response from the Cardinals was very unbecoming of that organization. Um, when you go ridiculous. directly, yeah. When you go directly to the personal attacks and, you know, you're talking about, let's, let's talk about exactly that. what it was. What, hey, let's, yeah. So when the Cardinals, when the Cardinals responded to Terry McDonough's um, filing of this, uh, this legal filing uh, for arbitration now uh, inside the NFL, uh, when the Cardinals responded, what they basically said was in two sentences in this long, long response, uh, they basically said two sentences that Michael Bidwell didn't do this, okay? But then they went on to absolutely trash Terry McDonough in talking about things like child support with the daughter of he and his ex-wife and talking about uh, his temper and talking about uh, other ugly things in his past. And I just thought, what possibly does this have to do with the charges he is bringing up against the Cardinals? And it doesn't have anything to do with it. And I, I just thought it was really, really poorly done by the Cardinals, and it was done by an independent uh, public relations firm, uh, which really did a hatchet job on McDonough. But I talked to McDonough on Saturday, and and one of the things he told me is basically that, hey, listen, I'm Will McDonough's son. In other words, I'm going to stand strong. For those who don't know Will McDonough, he's the most storied columnist ever to write about the National Football League. 
before his untimely death, I think now about 20 years ago. Uh, he's, he's Terry McDonough's dad, also Sean McDonough's dad. And uh, Terry McDonough was a tough, tough uh, journalist. Uh, once got into a fight, a physical fight, uh, with Raymond Claiborne of the Patriots in the Patriots locker room. Uh, it just, he, Terry McDonough is not going to go down quietly here, I guess is the point. But we'll see how that goes over the next probably four or five months. I think this thing is going to take some time for the NFL to investigate, and we'll see how it goes. We'll follow the story here. But I think that's about all I want to devote to it right now. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again! Goal for the United States! Unbelievable! And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this! How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. Olympics this summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. So let's get to Tom Pellicero, longtime NFL uh, scribe and now both a writer and a broadcaster for NFL Network. It's on top of a lot of stories as we sit as we sit two weeks out from the draft. Here's my conversation with Tom Pelissero. Back on the podcast with Tom Pelissero of NFL Network. And Tom, interesting little news note you had about Cliff Kingsbury, who I think a lot of people thought might take the year off and live in Bali or wherever the heck he was, uh, far, far away from anything that had anything to do with the NFL, went to USC. Why do you think he went? And what do you think his future is? Well, Cliff had some time, Peter, to, to think about what he wanted to do moving forward. He's obviously got a lot of money coming to him on that Cardinals contract. He's made a lot of money in his career. He doesn't really necessarily need to work, but it's a unique opportunity to go to USC, where, remember, he was the offensive coordinator in title for like a month after he got let go by Texas Tech years ago and before he got the Arizona Cardinals job. Now he links up with Lincoln Riley. The two of them both come from similar backgrounds, the air raid offense. He gets to take over with the reigning Heisman Trophy winner in Caleb Williams. Cliff Kingsbury has coached a lot of really good quarterbacks, going back to Patrick Mahomes and Baker Mayfield. He had Case Keenum when Keenum was breaking the NCAA records. And now it takes over a guy who potentially could be the number one pick in next year's draft. I think it'd be a surprise if Cliff does what he did last time he went to the NFL and ended up, you know, coaching a a number one pick in Kyler Murray. Uh, But certainly, you know, if Cliff wants to get back into a power five program and and have an opportunity, this is a natural type of fit on a USC team that should be really good. Let's focus for a minute on Odell Beckham and what that means for the Ravens. I think we can all look at it and say, it's insane to guarantee Odell Beckham $15 million. 
uh, a guy who's had two ACL surgeries in the last three years, entering his age 31 year, did not play a snap last year. His last three years, he's been a shell of himself. What does it mean? Well, first of all, give Odell's agent Zeke Sandu some credit. Uh, there were a lot of opportunities where he could have folded and taken a, a lower offer. Obviously, everybody in the media and fans was saying, Odell's never going to get 15 to $20 million. Well, he stood in and basically said, this is what Odell's worth. He should be paid at this level. And the Ravens eventually stepped up and were willing to meet that number. I mean, it's a legit 15 million. And I've seen the incentives that can get to 18. They're totally reachable if he has a, an Odell type of year. What it means right now, it's multi-layered. Obviously, for the Ravens, they've needed a number one type of receiver. And we'll see if Odell can produce at that level at this point. He's barely played over the last three years, Peter. Not just sitting out last year, but he tore the ACL, I think, seven games in 2020. Came back, wasn't really himself in 2021. Then ends up engineering his release from the Browns, goes to the Rams. And he was the best player on the field for chunks of that playoff run and certainly for the first quarter and change in the Super Bowl. But we haven't seen him in so long. If he's Odell, if he's the guy that the Ravens think he can be based on the investment they're making in him, they've got a a legit number one receiver. And the other piece of this, obviously, is the Lamar Jackson connection. He and Odell are friends. From what I'm told, Lamar was actively involved in talking to Odell through the process, which I think takes some people aback because – the last time that we heard anything from Lamar in a situation in Baltimore, it was that whatever it was thread of three or four tweets saying I requested a trade back on March 2nd. Thank you all. It's over. We'll see you around. Appreciate everything. Basically a goodbye letter to Ravens fans. But, you know, behind that, Lamar was still in negotiations with the Ravens. He's actively playing a role in the recruitment of Odell. The two of them celebrated the night on Sunday night that Odell agreed to that deal. Lamar has done so many things in an unusual way through this process. Obviously, he doesn't have an agent, so none of this follows the normal cadence, the normal logic, or anything else of contract negotiations. And so you never truly know what exactly Lamar might do. But if we're judging him solely based off of his actions, he remains engaged with the Ravens, has not, by any account, been close to doing an offer sheet with a different team, And here he is recruiting somebody in Odell Beckham Jr. who now is on board with the Ravens. It certainly seems like all the arrows are pointing to Lamar one way or another being back in Baltimore for at least one season in 2023. I would agree with you on that. And I think one of the things I think the Ravens are doing that is intelligent is that they're not fanning the flames. And, you know, people tried to invent that DaCosta uh, saying at their press conference, um, we might take a quarterback, who knows? They're not taking a quarterback in the first round. That's the, that would be the most counterproductive thing. They take a quarterback in the first round, they're not very smart. That's all I would say. I don't care who it is. Um, because if you're trying, truly trying to make peace with your quarterback, you don't take his successor in the first round of the draft. Um, I'll say that number one. I just want to say one last thing about Odell. One of the things that I think people got caught up in with all the Odell stuff 
that happened in the last even two months, going back to the end of last season, where teams were considering signing him maybe for the playoffs, and, and nobody did because he just wasn't going to be ready. And, and, and I mean, this is going to sound a little bit odd, but I, I just want you to think about these numbers. When Odell was an intergalactic wide receiver, 14, 15, and 16, he caught 288 balls for 35 touchdowns. Okay. And in the last six years, the last six years, he's caught 243 passes. It just for 21 touchdowns. And again, I know everybody loves Odell and, and the great catch and all that stuff, but you got to live in reality sometimes. And that's why to me, and I wrote this in my column Monday, I don't think that the Ravens draft plans have changed one iota. My feeling is sitting there at 22, Zay Flowers or Jordan Addison is there. And I think maybe both will be. I don't know. The receiver group is such a weird thing this year. Tom, I think they're going to take a receiver. You're right on this being a a really different type of receiver group because you have some guys who don't have the normal measurables that teams look for in wide receivers. Now, I'm a Boston College graduate, so I'm a big Zay Flowers guy. I I got to meet him when I went out there to see BC play Duke uh, this past season. I mean, I've watched probably more BC football than anybody listening to this podcast, Peter. I can tell you, this is a dynamic type of a guy who's really going to help some team, but you know, he's, he's five foot 10 and played in the 160 something pound range. And we put act on some muscle during his pre-draft training, but you get some of the same things with Jordan Addison too. You know, it's where's the NFL going. And I think that the NFL is going in a lot of ways toward those guys who can make plays in space. Not everybody needs to be six foot three and 200 pounds and those big outside wide receivers like we've seen in the past. But, you know, outside of um, Jackson Smith and Jigba, I don't know that there's like a, a surefire type of this is the guy who checks every box and you can definitely say he's going in the first round. I think Zay goes. I think Zay may go higher than everybody's expecting, but there is a lot of uncertainty there. And you're right. Odell's on a one-year deal. Lamar is effectively right now on a one-year deal. I wouldn't be surprised if the Ravens at some point in the draft drafted a quarterback just because they don't have anybody on the roster. Right. They got Snoop Huntley. Right. I, I don't want to disparage Snoop, who was a Pro Bowl quarterback last year. Uh, you know, but he's on a he's on a restricted tender. Um, and it doesn't sound like at this point there's been an offer sheet on that front. So you would anticipate that perhaps he's back, the but- perhaps the all time perhaps the all time example of why I don't write one sentence about the Pro Bowl anymore that Tyler Huntley (laughs) played in the Pro Bowl last year. It's an absurd thing that should not exist. Obviously, it's so different now. You know, it's changed 180 degrees, but but whatever, whatever. Let's get on to things that matter. (laughs) So I I, I just kind of look at uh, this draft, Tom, and there's two things. I just went over this um, when I recorded the the pod with my partner, Miles Simmons, that basically eight of the top nine teams in this draft, all except the Seattle Seahawks, have a coach or GM or both in his first or second year of experience in the NFL. So 
What's the book on Monty Austin Ford at number three? I have no idea. Uh, Nick Casario's a CIA agent, so I have no idea what he's going to do. Um, Frank Reich uh, likes tall quarterbacks. Everyone else is in love with Bryce Young. I think I know how that one's going to go, but we'll see. I just think we are up for kind of a mysterious first part of the round. I just want to hear what you think about that aspect of this draft. I think you're absolutely right, Peter. And I was actually just on the phone with someone talking about that. I think that everybody kind of, if you just look at the narrative surrounding this draft, it's okay. The draft starts at three. Do the Cardinals take a player or do they trade it? And somebody comes up. We don't know what's going to happen at two because it's not just Nick. It's also Nick plus D'Amico and D'Amico Ryan's has significant amount of power. He's a new head coach. They're paying him a boatload of money in Houston to be their head coach. This is not Nick making a decision in a vacuum here. D'Amico is going to have a say in this as well. Do they think that one of these quarterbacks, if it's not the one, the number one guy who maybe they and the Panthers like the same guy. And certainly I believe within the league that right now there would be a level of surprise if it's not Bryce Young who goes number one. If you're not 100% sold on C.J. Stroud or Anthony Richardson or Will Levis, if you take Will Anderson, who's the safest player probably in the entire draft at number two, and know you got another first-rounder, you can play with that and get a quarterback someplace else. There's so many different ways. This is not as linear as the Jared Goff, right. Carson Wentz draft. It's not as linear as the Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson draft, which, you know, of course, in hindsight, now we go back and say, how would you have reordered that that round based on what we know now, at least at this very early point in their careers, about Zach Wilson and Trey Lance and, and Mac Jones and Justin Fields? But, yeah, I think that there is there is a level of uncertainty about what happens at two. With Monty Austin Ford, he's a Minnesota guy, Peter. I believe he's from Zambroda, Minnesota. So I've known Monty for a number of years now. He comes out of the New England mode and obviously has been with um, you know, been in Tennessee the past several years working with Mike Brable and at the time John Robinson there, but he's never put his name on a player, not to the degree that general managers do. So, yeah, there's a lot of different directions that the top of this draft can go. And I think that Seattle, you mentioned them, John Schneider, Pete Carroll, we do have the long track record there. But do you know what they're going to ultimately do? Because I, I don't. I, I bumped into to John and, and those guys down at the Florida Pro Day, talked to them for a while. I mean, they're doing all their due diligence on the quarterbacks because they haven't had a pick this high since like 2010 they've never been in this position so of course you're gonna i just have a feeling quarterbacks look i just have a feeling and it's probably you know just knee jerk i just have a feeling if anthony richardson is there at five it, it they're in the absolute perfect position to let anthony richardson be jordan love for two years you know they 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 love geno smith and geno smith you know, somebody told me this, that the reason why Geno Smith would be the perfect quarterback for Anthony Richardson is that Geno Smith wants to be, uh, you know, an offensive coach, head coach, quarterback coach when he leaves football. So what better to take the absolute perfect prospect who needs time you know, who if if some team drafts him thinking like Zach Wilson, we're playing him in the first year, could be a recipe for disaster. But if some team take, takes him and says our ideal is for him to play in 2025, 
I mean, how much more perfect could it be than to go to Seattle? Just right. well, that's just sort of what about, I think, you know. And then think about this too. Okay, if you're sold enough to take Anthony Richardson at five, just to kind of do game theory on this, then do you even take the risk and sit at five? Or do you make the call to Arizona, who's in your division and may not want to trade the pick to you, and try to get to three or even try to get to two with Houston? I remember Ryan Pace saying this to me once after they took Mitch Trubisky, which, you know, we can go back and do revisionist history on all that and figure out, okay, was it worth it and all those types of things. But, you know, his theory on why did they trade from three to two was, well, number one, the 49ers made them believe somebody else was coming up, whether there was someone or not, to number two. But also the way Pace said it was, if I had let go what I think is a franchise quarterback because I wouldn't give up an extra third rounder and then he became that franchise quarterback, I'd never be able to sleep at night. That Those are the decisions these teams have to make. If you're that convicted to take a quarterback in the top five, why leave anything to chance? And that's going to be part but of the, the game. The difference, the, difference, the difference between that and now is when the, when the Chicago Bears – looked at Mitchell Trubisky, and now it seems preposterous. When they looked at Mitchell Trubisky, they thought whether it was going to be opening day or November 1st that he was playing his rookie year. So to give another three just to move up to get him didn't seem like a horrible price to pay. This one, the difference is Seattle to go to five to three because you would think, Tom, that Indianapolis going from four to three would be a lesser price. Now, I've thought of what you just said with Seattle, going up to get Anthony Richardson if they love him. The question is, if you're Monty Ossinfort, do you say to John Schneider, okay, I want the 20th pick in the draft for you to come up two spots. Schneider's going to say, no, no way we're going to do that. We'll give you 37. Those are the next two picks for the Seahawks. And I think Monty Ossinfort will probably figure and who, and who knows whether this is true or not. Monty Ossinford will probably figure, hey, listen, if I don't, if I think that I can get the 20th pick in the draft going down two spots, I'm not taking 37 for him. I would much rather trade with the Indianapolis Colts and get the 35th pick for the Colts to move up one because all along I have thought that if the Colts move from four to three, uh, it's going to take the 35th pick in the draft. And what that would mean, obviously, is cutting off every other team, being able to take Anthony Richardson. And the only way that John Schneider would be able to trump that is to give the 20th pick. That's why I just think it's unlikely that the Seahawks, for a guy they're not positive about, I just think it's unlikely that they'd give a first-round pick to move up ahead of a team that I don't think would have to give up even next year's one. And that's just a little inside football, but that's just my thought. No, and I think that's, Tom, I think that's me, the fascinating part of all this. Yeah, like does Chris yeah. Ballard feel convicted to move up? Do the Cardinals, yeah. is their best offer going to come when they're on the clock and Houston shocked everybody and not taking a quarterback? I mean, these are all the things that yeah. these GFs have to figure out, which makes this these next 16 days or so are a lot of fun. What what percentage chance is it that the fact that the Houston Texans have a very bad taste in their mouth from the Deshaun Watson situation and dealing with David Mulugeta, the agent for Deshaun Watson, 
And now David Muligeta represents C.J. Stroud. Will that have anything to do with what Houston does at number two? No, I don't anticipate that. And honestly, by the end, when they worked through the trade, um, there was not, from what I understand, a lot of hard feelings with, with David Mulligetta, who, you know, had a really unique situation that he was navigating on his end as well and ultimately parlayed that into one of the most remarkable contracts we've ever seen, five years and $230 million fully guaranteed uh, from the Cleveland Browns. You know, that was there, – there were so many layers to that. I would say that the agent was probably not in the, the top five of the different issues that the Texans were dealing with through – uh, the entire saga with Deshaun Watson. I think that there there can be that stuff, Peter, at times. I mean, you, you've covered this league a long time. You know some of the, the legendary fights between uh, agents and teams. But in terms of that particular situation, I, I don't anticipate that that's, that's going to be a factor. Tom, tell me, you uh, we were talking about this, obviously, before uh, we we started, but... I think one of the interesting things about the draft right now, and as we record this on Tuesday, April 11, it's 16 days before the draft, I've tried to explain to people that there's a reason why Seattle doesn't know if it's taking Jalen Carter uh, on, as I referred to it on Sunday, which would have been whatever, 18 days before the draft. And it's because they were having Jalen Carter in for a visit this week. And how in the world can you know whether you're going to take a guy? Everybody is saying, oh, they will take Carter. They won't take her. I I have no idea if they're going to take Carter because they haven't talked to Jalen Carter yet other than maybe very, very briefly. So tell me how much remains to be done now in these 16 days And where are teams in general right now in finalizing draft boards? Well, I'll start with this, Peter. It's a serious situation, that car crash that took the life of his teammate and a staff member at Georgia. And that was not something that was five years ago. We're talking months ago. And so teams need to have every layer of information, talk to every single person, know exactly what they're dealing with on that, not just because – there was a criminal uh, investigation part of this, but also just because you don't want to find out after the fact that there's something more to it. I go back to last year's draft. There were two different car crashes involving top Georgia prospects that I was literally sitting in a hotel suite in Las Vegas and talking to the authorities about because some teams had found out about them at the last minute, literally in the days leading up to it. I think one of them was involving, well, one was with Trayvon Walker, ended up being the number one pick. The other one was Quay Walker and another Georgia player. And that one had occurred at like the Georgia spring game the Saturday before the draft. And so there didn't end up being like anything there. There was no substance issues, but it was still, these guys were in a car crash and the police were involved and there's a police report. And I was calling teams saying, Hey, do you have anything on this? They're like, what are you talking about? So then they're, you know, scurrying around to get the police reports. Those things happen sometimes, um, particularly in, in, college towns where you may not have you know as readily accessible information as you might have in certain other places so they'll be investigated they'll be looking into that and then also it's just Jalen Carter as a person because certainly there have been things that have been said about him there were some public incidents like the 
the, I don't know if you want to call it a fight, but the rumble in the end zone before a game, I think it was against Utah last year, where he kept going back and getting in the faces of people. You can find it all on YouTube. It's all out there. Um, from what I understand, there are people in that program who vouch for Jalen Carter, who say that, you know, you got to give him a lot of resources, but this is a guy you can work with. He's obviously a hell of a player, a talented three technique, a premier position here, but you got to get fully comfortable with him and sit him down and make sure that his story lines up and is consistent with all the information you've gathered. Do you have a gut feeling right now, Tom Pelissero, who might shock the world in this draft, either a team making an odd pick, a team making a big trade up, or a player getting picked before any of us think he will get picked? It's a good question, and that's something I'm working through this week. I, I will say this. I don't know what the Titans are doing. I don't know what direction they're going to go. I don't know what they're going Could they draft a quarterback? Are they going to trade Derrick Henry? There's something there. Could they go and potentially execute an offer sheet for Lamar Jackson after the draft? That would surprise me, but until Lamar signs somewhere, you can't rule it out. I just know Tennessee has had a very quiet offseason overall. They released a bunch of their high-paid veteran players. They have not, to this point, touched Ryan Tannehill's contract, which has $27 million, none of it guaranteed. They have not touched Derrick Henry's contract. They have a clear need for receiver help, which has been an ongoing thing here. They've got a new offensive coaching staff. They have a lot of questions. They've obviously got one of the best head coaches in the league in Mike Vrabel. But you just look at them. They're sitting there at number 11. They're bringing all the top prospects in, including the quarterbacks. What are the Titans up to? If just in a vacuum, last year they pulled one of the big surprises too, trading A.J. Brown to the Eagles. What exactly are the Titans up to here? New GM, Rand Carthon. We'll see. That is one where if you're going down the list and you kind of have an idea on different teams, I get to number 11. I don't know exactly what the Titans are planning, but you have to think that there's something coming there in one way, shape, or form. I like that. That's a really good one. I'm going to ask you one final question, and that is about Aaron Rodgers. It seems to me pretty logical that the Packers are sitting there saying, we want the 13th pick in the draft. The Jets are sitting there saying, over our dead bodies, will you get the 13th pick in the draft? Aaron Rodgers is entering his age 40 season. We've been down this road before with a player named Brett Favre. We're not trading a guaranteed lock first for a guy who might only play one year. Um, where, where, what does your gut feeling tell you about where that is right now? Peter, I don't believe that the Aaron Rodgers trade hinges on the number 13 pick. And in fact, I don't believe that the number 13 pick is really the focus of any of this. The Packers GM, Brian Gutekunst, said at the league meeting that they don't necessarily need to get a one. You also know that he would like to get a number one pick for a four-time NFL MVP who's still got something left and is in a unique situation where he's already declared the team that he wants to go to. It makes a lot more sense for everybody involved for the focus, and I believe this is where the focus is, to be on a potential number one pick in 2024. The question then becomes, is that a hard first-rounder that's a first-rounder regardless? And even if Aaron Rodgers is on some other team, the Packers will be using the Jets' first-round pick in 2024. 
or is it what the Jets surely want, which is conditions on that pick starts out lower. And if Aaron Rodgers plays well, if they have team success and or if Aaron Rodgers sticks around for a second season in New York, then that can potentially become a one. You lose the options when you focus in on the 2023 first round pick because that pick's going to be made by somebody in 16 days here. I believe it'll be the Jets unless they make another trade to move around within the first round picking at number 13. The Rodgers trade is going to depend on a pick this year and then exactly how do you sort out what the additional pick would be in 2024. If I am the arbiter of all things Aaron Rodgers, here's what I say to make this go away right now. Jets send the Packers the 42nd pick in the draft this year, a second-round pick, and they say it's very, very simple after this. If Aaron Rodgers plays one snap for the New York Jets in 2024, you get the first round pick of the Jets in 2025. If he does not play one snap in 2024, you get our third round pick in 2025. In other words, how are you going to give a very high pick like a number one next year in 2024 if it's uncertain whether Aaron Rodgers is going to play? I think there's no way to do this other than to shift it to 2025. But that's just me. Flip side of that, if Aaron Rodgers almost surely is not playing in 2025, the Jets don't want that pick going out the door at that point. But this is all part of the discussion. They've they've discussed, Peter, multiple different structures, what this trade could look like. They're not far, but they're still not close. And we will probably find out when that pressure point arrives in the 72 hours or so before the draft, whether they're actually going to get there or whether we're going to go into full-on crazy town going past this draft and seeing what happens this spring and summer. You would think it's highly likely that this gets done by April 27 or 28? I believe that there is motivation on both sides and reasons for both sides to want this to get resolved prior to the draft. The Jets' best leverage point is before the draft because, hey, if you don't take our best offer now, you're devaluing your picks because you're pushing them into 2024 and 2025. For the Packers – Their leverage, if you want to call that, is we're willing to go beyond the draft. We're willing to hold him all the way through the spring. We're willing to take this into training camp. We don't have to make a decision on his option bonus till the day before the regular season. So if you want to not have this guy in training camp and roll a 40-year-old quarterback out there without any practice time, albeit in an offense he knows, and with receivers who will probably be working out with him in California, okay, that's where you get into the basically the full-on stare down. Right now, this is – pretty standard leverage again unique situation but pretty standard I would think that pressure point it does arrive prior to the draft if I had to guess I would say the deal gets done before the draft but as we've seen throughout this saga Peter you can never be 100% certain on anything hey uh, Tom Pelissera thanks so much for joining me and uh, appreciate your help you do a great job at NFL Network I look forward to following you in the weeks before the draft Always a pleasure, Peter. Thanks for having me. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. 
That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. Oh, what do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. <laughs> oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. So what will be really interesting, as Pelissero said, uh, is to see what sort of impact Cliff Kingsbury has on Caleb Williams who I think we all think one year from now is very likely to be the first pick in the NFL draft, now the quarterback at USC. Uh, That's going to be an interesting story to follow. So, Miles, in talking to some people around the league on Saturday and and two on Sunday, preparing to write my Football Morning in America column, one of the topics that I went over with everybody was the receiver group. And... It's a weird year for receivers because there's not one receiver who everyone loves. And I had one team say their top guy is Zay Flowers from Boston College. I had others say how high they were on um, other receivers. And what I think is so interesting about the receiver position this year is... If you, if you think about it, if you're in the second half of the draft uh, and, and whoever it may be, whoever you might like, you're going to be able to get one of the four or five really good receivers at the top of this group, especially considering that there is not one who's head and shoulders above anybody else. Yeah, and it it kind of will go to preferences and how do you think one guy can fit specifically what you want to do and your scheme and all those different types of things. So it it is interesting because when you, like you said, there's no real one consensus. Oh my gosh, this is the guy you've got to have him. That makes a little bit different. And I think, you know, what we've seen in the last few years with receivers, you can get a guy maybe toward the end of the first round, and he can turn out to be, I don't know, Justin Jefferson, right? It's not necessarily like we were all really expecting Justin Jefferson to be that fantastic as a rookie, especially because, I mean, he wasn't drafted within the top five. So, I mean, he's giving you top five production. I mean, he's arguably the best receiver in the National Football League right now. So there are ways that you can get guys that fit what you do and fit what your scheme is and fit how your personnel is. And I think that's going to be one of the interesting things that happens in the first round is where are these guys going to go and how are they going to end up fitting? I am really kind of fascinated by the discussion at the very top because I think probably I'm going to guess that at least half the teams in the league will have the receivers one, two in some order. Um, Ohio State's Jackson Smith, Najigba, and USC's Jordan Addison. Now, Smith, Najigba had a really, really good 
2021 season for Ohio State. And then last year, he suffered an early hamstring injury and only caught five balls all year and eventually was shut down for the year. And, you know, as one team, you know, I was when I was talking to him said, you know, to have a hamstring injury bother you for that long of a time and whatever happened. I know a lot of teams are really looking into that. And when they did the physical on, on Smith and Jigba, you know, they wanted to know basically why did this hamstring injury linger for so long? Why were you not able to rehab that? Because obviously you get a hamstring injury in September and then you don't play for the next four months, basically, why? Why? What's what's yeah. what happened? So I think there's some question about that. Meanwhile, Jordan Addison is such an interesting story because he caught a hundred balls from Kenny Pickett at Pitt in 2021, and then in 2022 he transfers. First time in his life he's lived out west. He goes to USC, has to learn a totally new offense. You know, under Lincoln Riley. Catches 55 balls. He's the leading receiver at USC. Uh, A lot of respect for the transition he made and how well he did as a receiver at USC in 2022. And then, obviously, there's Zay Flowers. 200 catches in his career at BC. Four years of experience. And not on a great team, either. Playing with a much lesser supporting cast I think this is going to be a really, really interesting, you know, it's it's Baskin-Robbins 32 flavors or whatever. Uh, <laughs> who do you like best? And you add in other guys like Jalen Hyatt, uh, who's visiting the New York Giants this week. So there are a lot of receivers in this draft, and I think that we're going to be surprised at how they come off the board, Miles Simmons. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I, I, the guy from TCU as well, um, whose name is escaping right. me, is I'm just saying this right now. But it's it's one of those deals where, like you were saying, you know, you have you get to pick whichever one you exactly want, and you know whether it's a guy like a Jordan Addison or who I was very impressed with being out here in LA, and you you see what the transformation was with Lincoln Riley, with Caleb Williams, who, yeah, like we said, is probably going to be the number one overall pick next year. But he had a guy in Jordan Addison that he could really rely on. And that's something that when you go from one offense to another offense and you are that productive, I, that would make me feel pretty good about the way he can translate to the next level if I'm somebody who's looking for a wide receiver. Miles, let's get into the last topic that I want to discuss this week on the pod, and that is the unpredictability of this draft and maybe why it's particularly unpredictable this year versus other years. You know, as I go over the top of this draft, you know, just just follow me here. All right, the number one pick in this draft, you've got, you're going to pick a quarterback in Carolina. And the coach... The quarterback coach, the senior offensive assistant, and offensive coordinator are all new, and they're all basically working together in this form for the first time. You know, it's the first year as a as an assistant coach for Josh McCown, the quarterback coach. Uh, Thomas Brown comes over from the Rams as the offensive coordinator. Jim Caldwell, first time working with those guys. 
Caldwell and Frank Reich know each other, but working together in this capacity, it's new for the first time. So there's that. In Houston, you have a, a, a relatively new GM in Nick Casario, but a guy who really is very secretive, just like his mentor, Bill Belichick, and a rookie coach in D'Amico Ryans. Now you go to number three, a rookie general manager and rookie head coach, Monty Asenfort, Jonathan Gannon. What's the book on them? Who knows? Then we go, obviously, to number four with a new head coach in Shane Steichen. You know, I think there's still a lot of what is it going to be like for a veteran general manager, Chris Ballard, and Shane Steichen to work together. At number five, there's none of that. John Schneider and Pete Carroll have worked together for a thousand years. So, you know, you the book has been written. The one different thing, one different thing and really weird thing about this is they've, they don't pick this high. John Schneider is right. always trying to figure out what we should do late in a round. You know, yeah. then we get to number six with the Lions, Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell, second year guys. Uh, you get to number seven with the Las Vegas Raiders, Josh McDaniels, Dave Ziegler, second year guys. Uh, you get to number eight with the Atlanta Falcons. Again, new guys led by Terry Fontenot uh, and Arthur Smith. Terry Fontenot in his second year running a draft. And obviously, number nine, uh, both of the uh, draft players in Chicago, the coach, Matt, Matt Eberflus, and the boss, general manager Ryan Poles, both in their second year. You look at that and you understand why one agent told me over the weekend, man, your mocks are going to look really stupid or words to that effect. Miles, <laughs> I'm curious, when you hear that, do you think that there's going to be an unprecedented amount of wow on draft night? Or do you think we're overplaying that? Um, I don't know if we're overplaying it. I, I think that there are probably going to be some trades, though. I, you know, I, And whether it's with the Cardinals um, at number three and somebody is aggressive, whether it's the Colts or perhaps the Raiders – um, or somebody else that just says, look, we, we feel really good about one of these quarterbacks, whether it's Anthony Richardson, who I would assume it would be, or somebody else. And they say, yeah, we need to make an aggressive move so that we can get up so that we make sure we get this guy. Th that I think could happen. Um, but it could also just be, you know, somebody like a Jalen Carter who we were just talking about. Maybe he continues to slip because th there are teams that don't want to take whatever risk they see in um, picking somebody like Jalen Carter. So I think, yeah, you've got a couple of linchpins in that top 10, you know, uh, because of the history that we know of John Schneider and Pete Carroll and how they usually trade back and get more picks. That's going to be a very interesting pick to see what it is that they do. You know, Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell have been together for a few years now. They don't necessarily need to pick a quarterback, but could they do that? Because Jared Goff, you know, he's been good for them. Are, is he going to be able to carry them over the mountaintop? Or do they see him more as an Alex Smith type where you have a guy that's good, 
but you don't necessarily know if he's going to be great and get you over the top. And so instead we pick a guy, let him sit, learn behind Jared Goff, and then that becomes our guy later. I don't know, but I, I just feel like there are a couple of different interesting linchpins where you look at it and say, three, are they going to keep that? We don't know. You know, five, are they going to keep that? We don't know. Six, are they going to keep that? We don't know. Seven, are they going to keep that with the Raiders? Are they going to move up? We don't know. So you know what I'm saying? Like that's where the intrigue is. And I guess if you're Roger Goodell, that could make for a pretty compelling television show. You know, one last thing I do want to add, I should have said this during our discussion about receivers, but Ian Rappaport has reported that Jordan Addison is going to visit the Vikings, Bills and Giants uh, this week before the deadline of late Wednesday. Um, And so I would assume that's a, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday deal for Jordan Addison. Interesting to me is that my feeling is I think Jordan Addison is a strong candidate at number 22 for the Baltimore Ravens. Mm-hmm. And the Vikings are 23rd, the Giants are 25th, and the Bills are 27th. This is the kind of thing that if one of those three teams kind of falls in love with Jordan Addison, This is the kind of thing that creates opportunities for trades in the middle of a first round. In other words, if, if I'm Brandon Bean, the general manager of the Bills, and I really want Jordan Addison, and he's far and away the best player left on my board, say, midway through the first round, and again, this is all big ifs. Yes. This is when you call the Seattle Seahawks at number 20, and you say... All right, John Schneider, I'll give you this pick and our three uh, for uh, I want to move up seven spots. And I'll give you my three and maybe a six to move up these seven spots. Now, I don't have the Jimmy Johnson trade chart in front of me, but (laughs) my point is this is the kind of little intel about visits and who is going where. And now we know the New York Giants at 25 are going to have in-person visits with both Jalen Hyatt and Addison. So, and I I would bet a lot that they've already talked to Zay Flowers, for instance. So teams doing their due diligence just leads me to believe that, you know, the, end, the second half of the first round is going to have some interesting receiver picks, especially because late visits oftentimes connote teams that are very interested in a guy and want to get to him last Mm -hmm. uh, late in the visit process so you can find out, hey, where have you been so far? What's their level of interest? What have you seen? And, you know, there's some interview techniques that you can tell when you talk to some of these players. So we'll see what happens. But Miles, to me, the receiver group is going to be just, I think, totally fascinating uh, on the night of April 27th. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned the bills. I would like to see the bills get aggressive. You know, I, I mean, I, the bills are one of those teams where it's like, yeah, we still expect them to be a competitor as long as Josh Allen is on that team. 
But A, I think Josh Allen needs to cut back on the turnover, especially the fumbles. But B, they need to go out and get him somebody who can be a reliable second weapon to a Stefan Diggs that they just have not necessarily had. And you need somebody to be that primo guy. And if Brandon Bean can get aggressive and go get somebody like that, I, I would feel encouraged about the Bills offseason. You know, Miles, just a quick tease for next week. Um, I, I really want to kind of dissect Bijan Robinson next week because I just had a one, two, maybe a two sentence note in my column this week about how I think the Eagles at number 10 should take Bijan Robinson. And I got, I got both Philadelphia Twitter and Philadelphia media all a flutter with that saying what a dumb pick that would be, but we'll get into that next week for now. Uh, I'm just going to make one final point. You're talking about the Buffalo Bills. Last year, the Bills scored 455 points. They had the biggest uh, point differential in the AFC last year. They scored 169 more points than they allowed. And what is so interesting about this is everything you hear about the Buffalo Bills, what are they going to do to help Josh Allen? Josh Allen needs help. They scored 455 <laughs> points last year. I mean, you know, whatever that is, 27 points a game. I, I'm not sure. I think what they need to do is find Von Miller, the fountain of youth. But we will have time to discuss uh, the Buffalo Bills prospects as we go down the line in podcast land. That's it for this week's episode of the Peter King Podcast. So happy to be uh, joined by all of you this week. And we look forward to next week. We'll be one week closer to the NFL Draft. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks a lot for experiencing the Peter King Podcast.